0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Depending on the patient, a complaint of feeling tired, fatigued, or sleepy may all mean the same thing. In other patients, they may not describe sleepiness as fatigue or tiredness. Once we sort out what the patient is actually describing, how do we evaluate the sleepy patient? How much sleep do we need per night? And what's an inadequate amount? How do we evaluate the quality of a patient's sleep? And what role does age play in the evaluation of a patient's sleep? These are questions I'll discuss with our guest for today's podcast. Dr. Michael Silber is a neurologist and sleep expert at the Mayo Clinic, and he will be our guest for today. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Michael, welcome, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, when patients are describing their sleep, it's kind of like when they say they're dizzy. You're not quite sure what they mean. So how do we get the patient to elaborate on what they're really describing in terms of their sleep?
1: Yes, it can be very difficult because... Different patients use different words and different terms. And even in society as a whole, we use terms differently. For instance, in the transportation industry, the word fatigue means sleepy. And when the National Transportation Safety Board issues a report saying that somebody fell asleep at the wheel, they use the word fatigue. Medically, we do our best to differentiate between sleepiness and fatigue, and I'll tell you how I try to do it. I say to a tired patient, let's try separate out sleepiness and fatigue. Those are only words. You can use them any way you like, but let me tell you the way I think about them so we can try and see if we can be on the same wavelength for this. And then I say, this is sleepiness. <sighs> A great yawn. Your eyes want to drift shut. Your head wants to drop to your chest or shoulder. You feel overwhelming. Sleep is about to overcome you. And in fact, if you sit down, though you've no intention of falling asleep, very frequently you've dozed off for at least a few moments. And that is sleepiness. Fatigue is different. If you're fatigued, you don't fall asleep all the time like that. You just don't have the physical energy in your body to do the physical things you should be able to do. Your muscles feel exhausted. And if you are so fatigued, you have to lie down. You may fall asleep. You may not. If you do, it's different from that irresistible falling asleep, which you can't really control, which is sleepiness. Now, when I do it this way, the patient's come up with several answers. Some will say immediately it's all sleepiness. And some will say immediately it's all fatigue. And some will say it's both. And we've got to probe that more carefully. And there are some whose mind just doesn't work in that way to separate things out so neatly. It's not their fault. Everybody's minds work differently. And then it can be very difficult because they just can't express it clearly in my simplistic way. So that's the way I go about it. If the patient is clearly fatigued, most often it's not a primary sleep disorder. Now, there's one caveat to that, and that is some people with obstructive sleep apnea, especially women, and we don't quite understand why, often express their tiredness as fatigue rather than sleepiness, whereas the majority of people with sleep apnea describe themselves as sleepy, so we just have to be careful with that one. Otherwise, Chronic fatigue can obviously be due to multiple chronic medical illnesses, to neurologic illnesses, multiple sclerosis, et cetera, to depression, and then to the whole subject of chronic fatigue syndrome plus minus fibromyalgia, which is a whole talk of its own.
0: Well, that's a good way to separate those words out. And, and then you get the patient who says, well, doc, I am told you, I'm tired. You're the doctor. You figure it mm-hmm. out. So mm-hmm. it, it can be challenging right from the beginning. It
1: can. So what's required for a good night's sleep? Well, we need ideally a length of sleep. And most studies have suggested that the ideal is seven to eight hours a night for the adult. It doesn't mean it's catastrophic if you get a little less or a little more, though there are long-term population-based follow-up studies that suggest too little sleep chronically, um, and that's really under five hours a night or maybe over nine or ten hours a night, is associated with increased mortality probably from vascular disease, especially from the short sleep, there's evidence for that. But short sleep and long sleep are not strong predictors of mortality compared to, say, untreated diabetes or smoking or hypertension, but they are a factor. So, length of sleep is important. The question is whether it's REM sleep or deep non-REM sleep, you need both. Most studies have suggested, ideally, you need both. Now, a lot of patients are coming in today wearing these wearables, which attempt to say how long are you sleeping and what stages of sleep you are And studies that have been done, and obviously it varies from device to device, but studies that have been done show these devices are pretty reasonable at determining total sleep time, when you're awake and when you're asleep, and most of them are not accurate in determining REM versus non-REM sleep. So when a patient comes in and says, it's terrible, I'm getting minimal REM sleep, I'm very wary about it, and I ask them to relax, and let's go through the symptoms rather than rely on these results of the wearables. So multiple things that are needed for good sleep, and obviously multiple interruptions during sleep as one gets with sleep apnea and other causes is also not good for one.
0: I think back to when I was a resident and being on call like every third night, I think we probably mm-hmm. averaged about three hours of sleep per mm-hmm. night, so. Probably wasn't a really good idea for taking care of so many patients back then.
1: Not a good idea at all. And, you know, we've tried to improve things since then. The rules are better, but it's still a problem, sleep deprivation. We always think of it in terms for physicians of how we may harm patients, and we should think that way, but we don't always think about it in terms of how we harm the residents. Sleep insufficiency in residents can cause depression, severe problems and i always think about it especially as we know there is a, there is a suicide risk especially for first year residents so mm-hmm. I, i'm always concerned about sleep deprivation in that group
0: so you need an adequate amount of deep stage sleep and rem sleep mm-hmm. If you are deficient in those, let's say you wake up frequently for a period of time and you don't spend as much time in deep-stage sleep or REM sleep, does that make it up later? I mean, if you're allowed to sleep through the night, Mm -hmm. do you spend more time in deep-stage sleep and REM sleep to make up for that?
1: You do indeed, if you were on call all night, as you were saying, and the next night you get recovery sleep, you will recover first your slow wave sleep the first night, your REM sleep the second night, Mm -hmm. you'll never make a full recovery of what you lost, even if you're allowed to sleep for as long as you like without an alarm, but it doesn't seem you need to, usually by the third night, you fully recovered from acute sleep deprivation, chronic sleep deprivation, well, that's uh, cumulative, and uh, you need some time to recover from that,
0: Okay. So let's say we have determined that the patient is describing the fact that they are sleepy during the day. What do we ask them to evaluate their sleep? What questions are good ones to ask?
1: Good, that's an excellent question. I sometimes like to talk about the five-minute sleep history. Now, it may be 10 minutes, and obviously it depends on the individual patient, but we can get a huge amount of information talking to the patient, where possible, a bed partner over a short period. So what I would do is I'll say, let's go through a typical night's sleep. On weekdays, for instance, what time do you go to bed? How long does it take you to fall asleep once the lights are out? And if it's a prolonged period, what's keeping you awake, an active mind or physical symptoms in the body, restless legs, pain? And then how often do you wake during the night and why do you wake? Often they don't know why they wake, but sometimes it's to use the bathroom or for other physical reasons. How long does it take you to get back to sleep? And again, if prolonged, what is preventing you to returning to sleep? And then what time do you wake in the morning? And is it with an alarm or spontaneously? And how do you feel? Refreshed, unrefreshed? Is the mouth dry? Is there a headache? And then is there a different pattern on weekends? Mm -hmm. So once I've worked through that, then obviously I want to know about snoring. If the bed partner says terrible snoring, I want to know in which position if they know. And is the patient aware of the snoring? In other words, do they wake with snort arousals? Um, or don't they know about it? And has the bed partner noticed apneas during the night? You'd be surprised how few bed partners actually do notice it, even when we then study the patient and find severe sleep apnea. But if they do notice apneas, that's a very strong predictor towards sleep apnea. Then we'll ask a little bit about movements during the sleep. Are there leg kicks during the sleep? Does the patient act out their dreams? Do they sleepwalk? And once we've gone through that, we should have a pretty good idea, at least, of what we're dealing with during the night.
0: Mm -hmm. One thing you mentioned that probably bears emphasis is the interviewing the sleep or bed partner. I get so much more information if I can uh, talk with the bed partner about snoring, breathing, leg movements, all these things that the patients often aren't aware of. You know they don't know if they snore they're not aware if they have breathing problems but their bed partner certainly is most patients that i see complain more of sleep as they get older what happens to our sleep as we get older
1: well there are definite normal changes of aging as we get older total sleep time on an average decreases somewhat Slow-wave sleep, the deepest stage of non-REM sleep, starts decreasing early in life, and especially decreases over the age of 60 or 70. That's normal. It's normal aging. REM sleep remains about the same. Arousals tend to increase. Sleep gets lighter. So, you know, there are changes, which sometimes we see patients who say, look, my sleep's deteriorated, and you go through it. And, you know, it's just normal aging changes and reassurance to how to deal with it, maybe all that's needed. But it's like the rest of our brains and our bodies, there are normal changes. But we must be careful that we don't miss pathologies, just saying everything's normal aging. Sleep apnea goes up with age, restless legs goes up with age, sometimes worries and depression develop with age. So we have to be very careful before we call things normal, but changes they are.
0: Sure. And combined with the greater amount of time in the lighter stages of sleep, older patients often have nocturia. So they're getting up several times Mm -hmm. to urinate. Uh, They may have musculoskeletal pain, so they're awakened more easily with various movements. So Mm -hmm. a lot of things happen uh, as a result of age. So when I get a complaint of sleep in a younger patient, that kind of raises some red flags because that's that's a little unusual mm-hmm. so what if we have a 20 some year old who complains of being sleepy what do you think about then?
1: yes that's a different at least order of differentials from an older person so for a sleep specialist like me that's not an uncommon complaint because they end up with me of course but the, the if we take the sleepy 18 19 20 22 year old what goes through my mind are the following number one insufficient sleep syndrome is their sleep deprivation. Younger people often go to bed late, they deprive themselves of sleep. Sometimes it's due to trying to study and work at the same time for financial reasons. So they're often good reasons, sometimes not so good reasons why they have insufficient sleep. Obviously, modern electronics and the internet plays a role here. So the first I think about is they just insufficient sleep. The second is a sort of variant of that and that's a circadian rhythm disorder called delayed sleep phase disorder now we all remember in our adolescence, and when we were 16 and 17, how the evenings were just great. We wanted to stay up late, best time of the night. And if you gave into that and only went to bed at 12 or 1 and had to be up for high school or later college at 6 or 7 in the morning, you were pretty sleep deprived. That's actually a physiologic change in late adolescence. But most people, by the time they're in their early 20s, revert to the normal circadian pattern of adulthood. But some people don't. And some young people, you find the reason they're sleepy is they're going to bed at 2 or 3 in the morning because they can't initiate sleep earlier than that and then they'd love to sleep into 11 or noon but either college or work doesn't allow it and they're sleepy so that's the second thing i think of the third which we certainly have to think of in young people are recreational drug use whenever we get a sleepy person who's young, not sometimes older, we just have to think, are they using substances? And then after that, if none of that seems correct, that they've started being sleepy in their teens, they're getting enough sleep at night, the circadian rhythm's normal, not on any substances, then we think of narcolepsy. Narcolepsy starts most commonly between the age of 10 and 20 years, and secondly, most common between 20 and 30. So this is the right age group. I would always ask the person then about cataplexy. Do they lose muscle tone in their legs? Or sometimes their face and neck with laughter or excitement. Not everybody with narcolepsy does that, perhaps 70%. But if they do, it's a strong pointer. And if we suspect narcolepsy, they certainly need full investigations by a sleep specialist. And then we still think of sleep apnea in younger people, if they are obese, if they've got large tonsils, which some people do have, or if they've got some sort of craniofacial anomaly, especially, and we see sleep apnea. So we have to think of sleep apnea as well. So those would be the things in that order that I would think about in a young person who's sleepy. Some of them can be sorted out very easily by careful history. Others need investigations and some need certainly need referrals to a sleep specialist.
0: Talk a little bit more about narcolepsy. What's actually happening in that condition?
1: Narcolepsy is a fascinating condition. It was first sort of delineated symptomatically in the 19th century, actually, when it was sort of teased out from a whole range of neuropsychiatric disorders that weren't understood. Our knowledge of narcolepsy has evolved over the 20th and the 21st century. Now. Type 1 narcolepsy, which essentially means narcolepsy with cataplexy, though not entirely, we now know is due to a deficiency of an essential neurochemical in the brain, which is called either orexin A or hypocretin 1, and I apologize for the two names. It hasn't yet been resolved which one will win out. And this is a neurotransmitter produced in the hypothalamus. It's the leader of the arousal orchestra. If you have hypocretin, that stimulates all the other arousal, awakening neurotransmitters in the brain, such as the catecholamines. Now, patients with narcolepsy have death of the cells in the hypothalamus, which produce this chemical, which we think, though it's not proven, is due to an autoimmune disease. Once those cells are lost, obviously, the patient becomes overwhelmingly sleepy. They may develop cataplexy and some other symptoms. Surprisingly, they don't sleep well at night, even though they're intensely sleepy during the day. Type 2 narcolepsy is a little more complex, and some may be due to hypocretin deficiency, and some we don't fully understand the mechanism. We diagnose narcolepsy usually by using a technique called the multiple sleep latency test, where under very controlled circumstances, we give the patient four or five nap opportunities during the day and measure how long it takes them going into sleep. And then we let them sleep and see if they go prematurely into REM sleep, because that's the real marker of narcolepsy, premature REM sleep. We can also, in a relevant patient, look in the CSF for orexin A, and I believe at Mayo we're the only center in the country at the moment doing it commercially, though of course I may be wrong, and that's another way of looking for it, we have very effective treatments for narcolepsy even though we think it's autoimmune immunosuppression doesn't seem to work and we think that's what happens is the cells die so quickly that by the time they diagnose there's no point in immunosuppression but a whole range of stimulant medications in more than 80% of narcoleptics can allow them to lead an, a relatively normal life
0: I, I don't see a lot of patients with narcolepsy that most of them i have seen have been on some form of a stimulant Are there any new alternative medications uh, that seem to Mm -hmm. be effective?
1: Yes, well, narcolepsy is not common, but it's not rare. Probably about one in 2,000 is the prevalence. Today, the first line medication we'd use is a drug called modafinil, which is a mild stimulant. It increases dopamine. Five, six years ago, we'd probably have gone next onto methylphenidate or the amphetamines. But as you say, we've got a couple of new drugs now. Solriamphetol is a drug which increases dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain, and it looks like it's very nicely effective. many narcoleptics. There's another new drug called patollicin, which actually increases histamine in the brain and may be effective. And we have this very interesting drug called sodium oxybate, started life as a date rape drug many years ago, and actually is heavily sedating. You take it before sleep and often four hours later into sleep. And it really does help sometimes the sleepiness during the day and is highly effective at controlling the cataplex especially. So we've got a nice range today, but it is fairly specialized management and generally narcoleptic patients are under the care of a neurologist specializing in sleep disorders.
0: Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit about the changes that occur with sleep in aging. And I think most patients that I have who are older say they've had problems with sleep for a long time. What do we think about when the older patient comes in and say they suddenly have problems with sleep. So a new onset of sleepiness, what comes to mind?
1: Yes. Again, the differential here is a little different from the younger person and right at the top has to be obstructive sleep apnea, Mm -hmm. by far the commonest medical illness that causes sleepiness. So we explore the snoring and the snort arousals and the apneas and the majority of patients with that sort of history will end up with obstructive sleep apnea. We then also consider the far less common condition of central sleep apnea, and the two things we should trigger thinking about central would be use of opioids and cardiac failure. There are some neurologic conditions, but they're less common. So that would be another differential that we certainly think of. The third thing I'd think of now in an older person would be not so much recreational drugs, but medications. Many older people are on polypharmacy, lots of drugs that the side effects can be sleepiness. And we must look very carefully at the medication list and see has it changed? Is this a factor in their sleepiness? Then, of course, we do look at sleep deprivation. Older people can be sleep deprived, just like younger people. And if it's not clear what's going on, I try probe a little harder. Is this really new? Or have they really had sleepiness problems since early adulthood that they've just suppressed in their mind over the years? And do they really have narcolepsy or the related condition of idiopathic hypersomnia that may have been present for decades undiagnosed? So we don't we Consider that as well. Systemic illnesses, of course, can cause sleepiness, but it's usually very easy to sort those ones out.
0: Well, Michael, you've given us a nice review of the evaluation of the sleepy patient. Can you kind of summarize by giving us maybe two or three key points?
1: Certainly. I'd say first, sleepiness is common. This is a common complaint. It can be disabling and it can be dangerous with driving, so we need to really pay attention to this complaint, sort out whether it is fatigue or sleepiness and probe and understand what is causing it. Second, a a relatively short sleep history can reveal many of those causes, or at least point to which patients need further investigations, such as for sleep apnea or a referral for more complex sleepiness, such as a circadian rhythm disturbance or narcolepsy. And for patients who do have narcolepsy, today we have a range of treatments, and I would say over 80% of my patients with narcolepsy, we can get very nice results. I've followed some patients for more than 20 years now through college, through marriage, through pregnancies, through work histories, and we can give them a really good quality of life. So an important symptom, and I'm really pleased to have had the opportunity to talk with you about it. We've been
0: discussing the evaluation of the sleepy patient with Dr. Michael Silber, a neurologist and sleep expert at the Mayo Clinic. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. A pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Docs podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.